Good afternoon, uh, everybody. Um, my name is uh, Patrick O'Connor. I'm the uh, president of the British Society for Phenomenology. Uli has asked me to, uh, to welcome you all, uh, so I'd like to extend you a warm welcome to the Society. And uh, I would uh, hope we have a wonderful, pleasant, warm, friendly and collegial event. Um, also, I'd like to extend a welcome to our distinguished keynotes. I'm very, very pleased and excited to have with us this, uh, this weekend. We have um, Professor Robert Bernstoni from Penn State University, Professor Pavel Babich from Fordham University, and uh, we have Dr. Francesco Brinzio from the University of Seville. Um, uh, so, welcome all to the uh, BSP 50th anniversary conference uh, on the history of being after the Black Notebooks. Um, so this uh, Uli is our, uh, the lovely Uli is our uh, convener, and uh, he's also going to be giving the first paper. And uh, Uli came up with the idea that we should uh, study the Black Notebooks. Um, well, the Black Notebooks are, as you know, um, a lot of critical attention has been uh, focused on Heidegger's, um, the consequences of the Black Notebooks for uh, uh, Heidegger's political biography. But uh, little critical attention uh, has been focused on the philosophical consequences, the phenomenological consequences uh, of this very, very important work. So that's what I'm looking forward to all the conversations we have over the coming days uh, to try and work out uh, that. Um, the, uh, this is also a very, very, very important event for us of the society because it's our 50th, it's the 50th anniversary of the society. The society was uh, started in 1967 by uh, uh, Wolf Mays, um, and in 1970, he founded uh, the journal, which has uh, the journal and the society has uh, since then tried to fulfil its mission to uh, promote phenomenology in all its forms in, in the UK and internationally. And we've published some very, very significant stuff in that time. We've uh, published works on uh, by Sartre, Lyotard, Scheler, uh, Heidegger, uh, among others. And uh, what I would like to do now is I would like to uh, introduce our convener. Uh, any, any, any inaccuracies uh, that I've just said can be attributed to him. And the, uh, Uli is an uh, all-around uh, nice guy, gentleman. He is the outgoing editor. He's currently the editor and outgoing editor of the, of the, of the, of the journal. So if you have any questions, you can ask him about that. He is also the author of um, Starting with Nietzsche, one of my favorite books uh, ever on philosophy and on Nietzsche. He's uh, also the author of an introduction to Blanchot with uh, Will, uh, who's also here. And his paper today is, How can the Black Notebooks enlighten us about the question for the, of the history of being? Welcome and uh, thanks for having uh, answered the call and come here in person. Uh, I hope that we will have a beautiful three days, as Patrick already said. As far as I know, there was only one inaccuracy in his presentation, which was not my fault. <laughs> Namely, as he said already, it's the 30th anniversary volume of the JBSP. The society is three years older, so that's already for 53 years. As some of you might know, who are advanced in age, like myself, for example, uh, we owe this all to Wolf Mays, who was the editor for 34, 35 years, uh, right unto his demise. 
And I have to admit that after my 14, coming now up to 15 years, I admire him a lot because it's a lot of work. As I always said, it's a bit like in the Lord of the Rings, which means you have this thing which you first think gives you lots of power, <coughs> then really it just wears you down. <laughs> <laughs> and still you can't let go of it. So I fought for a few years, just, just let it go, let it go, let it go. And finally, in some kind of mad moment, just wrote letters and said, I have to stop. So I'm just stopping on it. Now, the theme of this conference, because we were thinking what to do for the 50th of the JVC, one of the most outstanding journals in phonology worldwide, so it deserves something, some kind of memory event. Yet the theme obviously is relatively narrow, <coughs> which means it is on Heidegger, so phenomenology, and on the black notebooks, which maybe not everybody has read in full. I mean, I know a couple of people haven't. Uh, it is, at the moment, close to or just over 2,400 pages, so not something you do in the Saturday afternoon. Now, the question was why? And the main question for me was, why is it that in Heidegger research, as it's called, for many, many years, for decades, uh, people have always been unhappy about history and always have either tried to just take it out of the whole thing, forget about it, <coughs> and I talk a bit about that. And therefore, this is more an opening contribution, as my wife said to read through it, which was very nice, uh, because she's a violinist, not a philosopher. She said, but this is just like bag of open questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, let me start. Now, what I do hope, and that was as a obviously quote from the Black Notebooks to prove that I actually read them. Uh, <laughs> one of the first remarks that Heidegger makes, it says, it is easy to entertain the public of international conferences through speeches. <laughs> so I also experienced over the last months where this quotation ends, namely, I go on, but it's difficult to do one's daily work in the workshop of thinking at home. Especially if you're with these 2,400 pages, and there were these moments where I thought, why didn't I do something easy, like the science of logic, for example? I mean, just a few pages which you can easily work through, which you can calculate to the end, and then have something good to say, which everybody can agree with. <coughs> Now, in terms of the theme that I wanted to open up with this conference, in the call of papers you would have seen a slightly over-edged formulation. Namely that, rather than a Trafani's judgment, I quote, when he says, these notebooks give us entirely plausible reasons to break off every interest in Heidegger, in Heidegger's philosophy. I quote. That comes from thinking time. Instead, I thought, one might think of the black notebooks as throwing some light on some of the, I quote from the call for papers, most significant thought philosophy has to offer today. Now what would such thought have to offer? What are the most significant problems humanity currently faces? Uh, everybody knows that, first of all, global warming. That means the destruction not only of the human world, but of the world as such. Secondly, what we suffer at the moment from, namely globalization the growing feeling that the human being is losing its home, one of these topics which you often find in Heidegger, that it loses its world, that the more the human subject becomes a globalized phenomenon, the more isolated it becomes in its pure particularity. Consequently, the contemporary rise of right-wing politics in Europe. <clears throat> Thirdly, now it becomes more like philosophical, Nietzsche's nihilism, then the destruction of the essential political nature of the human being in the sense of breeding itself, breeding itself, which is a topic more of Nietzsche than you would find in Heidegger. 
in favor of the biological technologization of the human being as the finely fixed animal. And from here, therefore, Merleau-Ponty's nightmare from uh, L'Esprit, namely that there is threatening us, a nightmare from which there's no awakening, I quote, the fear that once the human being is drawn into the net of its own machinations, it will truly become the pure manipulandum that it thinks it is. That is just from the opening of L'Esprit. Now the question is therefore, does Heidegger's later philosophy do? Is it worthwhile reading these 2,400 pages? Does it help? <clears throat> does it in any sense address these questions? <clears throat> now the first one is relatively straightforward because everybody knows that from the 1960s onwards, 70s, uh, Heidegger's philosophy has always been used or made use of in the meditation on the essence of technology and its importance for environmental thinking. I mean, I remember still in the 80s in Germany when we were reading the question of technology, for example, uh, outside, actually I did it once with an orchestra, uh, who were not philosophically minded, uh, sorry, philosophically minded, yes, but not research-wise. <clears throat> and yet something has changed since the 1970s and the 1980s. That regards not so much different developments of climate science, because we knew everything then already, more or less, time-wise, uh, maybe a bit different. But the clear feeling that our time is even more limited than we might have feared. Philosophy, as everybody knows, has always had a long incubation time. It is not something that produces its good uh, in the moment. It never lent itself to quick fixes. But if you read again through these pages and you ask yourself, is it worthwhile reading through them? And you come across the line, I quote, only those who have the courage and the knowledge to think across the next 300 years are able today to join into thinking and to engage with philosophy." End quote. Now, as we know today, we might not have 300 years. And in that respect, quite independent of Heidegger's thinking, philosophy itself is under threat of global warming, although it might not be the worst thing that uh, finds its demise <laughs> in that event. <coughs> Now, that is obviously one reason as well why philosophy is not any longer the kind of hit subject in universities, because there they want to have immediate impact, immediate outcomes. So the question is, can, can anything like Heidegger's Gelassenheit uh, help us to accelerate the advent of another thinking? So it seems I'm pressing buttons, which are not... <laughs> now that might be essentially the problem, one of the main problems of Heidegger's thinking, as everybody knows, and so I've gone through some kind of mainstays just to motivate my thought about history, namely what is action, what is agency, what is subjectivity, these topics which already from being in time Heidegger enters into by cutting them out, which means by not using the word subjectivity, for example. Now, the problem for my generation, uh, I'm a bit older already, not as old as some here, but I mean, a bit older anyway, uh, was always that we went into philosophy because we thought that philosophy would help us to engage with the problems of the contemporary world. That we were just being slightly disappointed about Western democracies in this case, for example, but we're thinking that maybe once that we sit back and think through things, we would be able to come back and after this meditation on the truth of the world, return to action. But maybe the whole idea of thinking properly first in order then to direct one's actions lies at the heart of the very problem that Heidegger reflects on. It is therefore this Hegelian conviction of the force of subjectivity 
that being in time had begun to undermine and that is further destructed in Heidegger's later work, ending in the famous phrase, and everybody knows that one, that only God can save us. What it means, obviously, is a different question altogether. Yet, as we will see, there are many points of contact between Hegel's and Heidegger's meditations on historical philosophy, and once that we move from the middle of the note, the black notebooks onwards, Hegel and Nietzsche become more and more the main interlocutors of his writings. Uh, there are many more references to Leibniz to other philosophers in the first part up to the mid-40s, but afterwards it becomes more and more Hegel and Nietzsche. And in such a way that it's not even often phrased in the sense of the critical disengagement, sorry, that's my translation of uh, Auseinandersetzung. It's a bit difficult, I could explain why to say disengagement, my wife complained because she said disengagement doesn't that mean that you're not interested in things. <laughs> but philosophically speaking, the question was always why read Nietzsche? In what sense does one try, or does Heidegger try, sometimes torturously, uh, to move away from Nietzsche's thought? I just read one secondary article where somebody said, it was quite dismissive of Heidegger and the Black Notebooks. And he said, where does this idea come from to have to be original? And I mean, obviously, I'm quite happy not to be original, and uh, that's okay with me. But in a certain sense, uh, it just struck me. I mean, what would Heidegger do if not try to say something new? Otherwise, he could just calculate through the critique of pure reason and go to one of the infinite Kant conferences. <laughs> so as I said, often in the later parts of the Black Notebooks, it's not any longer even this critical disengagement or auseinandersetzung with Nietzsche, for example, with uh, Hegel, but rather he seems to phrase the reflections of these thinkers as expressions to be the truth or of the truth of existence as such, not even any longer to be put into question. In the end, the reversal of the relation of technology to science, which everybody is aware of, <clears throat> similarly to Hegel's thought, implies that we are acting before we are thinking, which means that thought does not suffice to change our actions. And here we also find one of Hegel's judgments at the root of Heidegger's thinking, namely that, I quote from the Phenology of Spirit, language is more truthful than what we mean to say. <clears throat> Now here we can also find the fundamental difficulty of thinking in the face of the insight that history has become the sole content of philosophy. And while I will come back to that topic at the end of my talk, the question arising here is whether this question for the history of being, especially as it is developed in the Black Notebooks, can actually inform any of these thoughts that we nowadays are struggling with. <coughs> Globalization. Now, from early on, Heidegger phrases or rephrases the question of the Nietzschean horizon that everybody is aware of from the second Antony meditation. <coughs> Necessary for any animal to live, and to the question of historical space and time. While the problem of globalization is addressed by the notion of global enframing and its concurrent enfermment or de distancification, that is, the progressive disappearance of distance in the process of the world becoming homogenized and therefore unhistorical space. Once all the people of this earth come together in international mindedness and internationalization, are we really going to enter the golden age of peace? Or are we at risk to lose ourselves? Now this problem has first of all given rise to this unhappiness about Heidegger. And the unhappiness about Heidegger, if you're reading lots of secondary literature, you will find the most dismissive statements about 
especially the black notebooks. But you can go much further back and you will find even in the 70s, 60s uh, authors who once they come up with an essential criticism of Heidegger, it's always this notion of history. <clears throat> now this unhappiness seems to go against the grain of the post-war con post consensus, namely that it's only globalization that can achieve universal peace and happiness. It is even more fundamentally put into question today when Eurocentrism in philosophy is essentially denounced and when the decolonialized curriculum made more or less obligatory, which means when one starts to have to take any thought that exists into the same framework of thinking. Now, originally, the confrontation with Heidegger was kept in relatively civil terms, namely that of a reactionary peasant philosophy <laughs> against a more enlightened, progressive city developer philosophy, which we nowadays obviously call in Britain the liberal elite philosophy. Now, Heidegger's consistent identification of thinking as the handicraft of the farmer, for example, obviously does not really come across well with city dwellers. It sounds abhorrent, especially to those who think that or think of philosophy as the hard conceptual labor of intellectuals who master the abstract constructions of representational systems, finally demonstrating their mastery by taking position, some ism that they then throw against all the other isms. And thus the language became much harsher lately when Heidegger's critique of globalization was identified with Nazi gluten Boden ideology and finally with metaphysical anti-Semitism. It seems to me that the immediate identification of Heidegger's thinking as reactionary and resentful, as much as the condemnation of his political engagement, all stem from an ignorance or denial of the essentially historical dimension of philosophical thinking. That was the idea behind this conference in the Seattle Conference. A denial which is aggravated by the ethically motivated critique of Eurocentrism, which implies this critique, a certain idea of philosophical thinking namely its logical, computational, and abstract nature, independent of any given space and time, that is metaphysical thinking that is essentially unhistorical. It is again, therefore, quite true that Heidegger's thinking constantly goes back to an idea of, the, of thinking, for example, in notebooks, as the bauen of the bauer, uh, for the building of the farmer, for example, or these kind of nice metaphors of country life. <clears throat> But the question might be, is such thinking necessarily reactionary in opposition to the progressive thinking of the city dwellers? Is this because the modern organization of life in megacities has become later, or has come later in historical time, that there's no future for the farmer? Is Geschichte or history to be interpreted from such a simple before and after, backwards and forwards? This is certainly the perspective of Heidegger's critique of globalization. In an essay called The Field Path, he writes, I quote, the human being attempts in vain to bring order to the globe by means of its planning, as long as it does not remain in integrated into the saying of the field path. The contemporary human being runs the risk of remaining deaf to its language. All that falls into their ears is the racket of machines, which they take to be the voice of God." End quote. It is at least worth considering whether there is some point here about the claim reminiscent of Nietzsche's critique of the last man, that the globalized world is a world without history, and therefore a world without future, and therefore a thought that might not be progressive. I'm aware that it is not sufficient to draw attention to Heidegger's claim that the present has to be sought from the future, but maybe illuminating that which he calls the fear of thinking comes back to a fear of the historical depth of thinking and its consequent realization 
namely that existence cannot be mastered by abstract rationality and that the philosopher is not the master of some meta-ethics or even meta-philosophy. This emptying out of any horizon seems to me to be at the root of a lot of misunderstanding. For example, when Günter Figal claims that Heidegger's idea of another thinking is trans-philosophical, end quote, so that was just the word actually. That is, the idea of another thinking is even more universal and even more globalized than just European metaphysics. Now, true, to consider these questions in terms of the black notebooks is rather unpleasant. Especially these, these arose in rather, un, rather unpleasant times. And yet, who did say that philosophy should be pleasant in the first place? As Heidegger quotes Hegel in seduction to the phenomenology of spirit, again in the Black Notebooks, volume 97, uh, philosophy has to be careful to avoid trying to be edifying. <clears throat> and to claim some point of decision in moral philosophy which would rule out the philosophical value of thought by means of an ethics test, as we nowadays have them at the university and everywhere when going to write an essay on Heidegger, for example, Black Notebooks, they first have to go somewhere like an ethics test to see if something like that is supposed to be written. Uh, you might be wondering why I'm talking about that at all, but this is now just some frustration coming from reading secondary literature on the Black Notebooks, <coughs> and tries to clarify some of that in terms of my uh, reading of them. <coughs> One cannot just sort philosophical insights into those which are less problematic, as if one could avoid philosophical problems according to the trolley problem. That is, choosing at each crossroads which path is, as Günter Fiegel again asks, when correcting Heidegger's ideas, which he says, less problematic. In other words, to be less problematic seems to be the measure of a good philosophical argument. And can one do that before one even starts to think along the path chosen? Now, another metaphor often used in secondary literature relatively recently is to describe the task as a philosophical, philosophical interpreter, which means the one who is not original, like Heidegger tries to be, by saying that we have to read out the 2,400 pages of black notebooks, read out uh, the bad bits, and then see if there are enough good bits left over at the end. <clears throat> now, in any case, <clears throat> the problem of globalization, which implies for Heidegger the question of nations and of people, of such strange concepts which you will find in the black notebooks like Russentum, or actually I don't know how one translates the tomb properly, like Russianness, I guess, or Deutschtum, or even of the Jewish people, is sought through the question for the history of being, this question which most commentators of Heidegger seem either to misunderstand, expressly rebuke, or just ignore. The task is therefore to think from the position of history towards that bedrock of philosophical Dasein, which is its own individuation. <clears throat> now, this individuation, the historical embodied life, will indeed throw up many problems that we have tried to escape from in, for example, the city dwellers of a Martianism. And yes, maybe it's ironic. It is rather ironic, maybe, if I would try to find in the reading of the Black Notebooks, which was of Heidegger's philosophical engagement from about the 1930s to the 1950s, some kind of help against the contemporary rise of the far right. Although he certainly provides a sustained critique of Nazi ideology from the mid-30s to about the mid-40s at the end of the war. 
And this critique of Nazi ideology rings true still today, at least in my years. <coughs> now, the following, I'm coming back again to this question of history, as if I needed to defend Heidegger, uh, especially in front of lots of Heideggerians, I guess. <laughs> <coughs> now, nihilism, everybody knows about uh, Heidegger's relation to Nietzsche. While Heidegger was always a Nietzschean, while being in time, for example, did not need to mention Nietzsche very often, I remember that I was rather disappointed, say that way, by an article by Michel Art where he says the, the place of Nietzsche in Heidegger's being in time. And he just goes to the two po points where the word Nietzsche is mentioned and to one conception somewhere. And you look at it and you think, but the whole thing is just Nietzsche. It's just a certain kind of response to a fundamental Nietzschean question. Without Nietzsche, it would be difficult to even think being in time in any meaningful sense. In that sense, it was always a Nietzschean while in being in time, you were still happily walking beside him or alongside him, Heidegger later saw, particularly dependent on his, again, Seinsgeschichte Auseinandersetzung or the historical critical disengagement, I apologized for that translation already beforehand, with Nietzsche precisely. This reflected the famous remark that, which is just folklore, <coughs> that Nietzsche has ruined me. Namely, at those moments where Heidegger thinks, actually, I cannot say anything original beyond Nietzsche. That's why it was ruined. Uh, as far as I can see it, again, not something radically new, uh, Heidegger was the first who sustainedly reacted or answered the request of Nietzsche when he said, Nietzsche that is, I'm now waiting for the one who will be able to make all my truths unbelievable. Which means the one who precisely, as Heidegger says, by stepping apart from Nietzscheanism, would sink Nietzsche down into history. So to say, and that is something which Heidegger reflects on, Nietzsche might have ruined me. And in the sense that even, as I mentioned before, and towards the mid-later uh, published notebooks, <coughs> Heidegger seems more and more to just take Nietzsche's words for real or for reality. <coughs> and I would say, just to clarify that a bit, I mean that you can see the whole path of Heidegger's thinking namely from this kind of destruction of, being, of metaphysics and being in time towards uh, the historical question of the setting itself apart from the history as it is embodied in Nietzsche's, Hegel's and Leibniz's work mainly, is precisely this response to Nietzsche's question of somebody who would make all my truths unbelievable. The Black Notebooks engage with this attempt constantly again and again reflecting on the relation to last man and modernity between the downfall of the higher man and the overcoming of metaphysics. Therefore, the question of the not yet fixed animal, then the human being or the overhuman on the one hand, and the insertion into Dasein in its later uh, version with the hyphen between Da and Sein on the other. But the question for the history of being is therefore not very surprisingly constantly developed on the background of Nietzsche's questioning of history and the achievements of other thinkers as measured against Nietzsche's thought. And yet, as I mentioned above with respect to Hegel, <coughs> uh, these black notebooks use the words of Nietzsche often as fact, in fact is not the right word, obviously, but I mean, as truths, to such a degree that, that's just an example, he once says of Spengler's Decline of the West, I quote, this book hardly manages to reach the threshold of the overhuman. Mm. 
obviously Spengler did not mean necessarily to do that, but I mean, that is what a philosophy would do if it then does something. But this will introduce another problem named that of the body, which Nietzsche describes as the mediated truth of history. And that again is as far as I want to make a claim precisely what Heidegger does by not using the word body. He mentions a few times the word body is just too difficult, especially at the time of being in time. I mean, it obviously stares out of every single page of the book, but he says it is too difficult. One can just ignore the word subject, for example, or consciousness. One can move without them, without problems. But not using the word body is at least a problem. <clears throat> and I guess that is again a response to Nietzsche's meditation on history, where he says, I quote, this human body in which the whole of the farthest and nearest past of all organic becoming reawakens and becomes body through which and beyond which an enormous but inaudible stream seems to flow. In other words, the bedrock of history for Nietzsche is not the historian who thinks about Rome and uh, the crossing of Rubicon, but it is the body itself, that which thought might react or that on which it lives. <clears throat> this body will throw up all these problems again from space and place to even metaphysical anti-Semitism. This body of which Heidegger has constantly affirmed that it's too difficult to talk about and so far as the question of the history of being ventures to understand what we call the body or the Leiden, the Leben or the, the embodied life <clears throat> without recourse to any objectification to either life or mathematical space. What happens to this live delay or embodied life once we have to understand place and time, I quote from Hurdin and Sims, the Easter, once we have to understand place and time in terms of their relation to history and human beings as historical. As you can see, what I'm trying to do is just say what everybody knows, really, it's a bit boring, but, uh, <clears throat> that one cannot take the way of history away from anything that Heidegger has ever said or written. Or again, in other words, what happens to the thinker of the human body as soon as we are forced to leave the age-old attempt to understand the human being as an animal plus something? As Nietzsche says, and that again, I guess, is one of the foundational sentences for Heidegger's reading, <clears throat> I quote, our experience of space and time leads us into error. I always have to explain that to my students. He doesn't say our thoughts about our concepts about space and time, not how we think about it as wrong, but he says our experience of space and time leads us into error. And from here, Heidegger's reading of Aristotelian metaphysics, when he says since Aristotle, we always thought of space and time as just the displacement of motion, whereas we have to think of space and time based on the history on the actual history of human beings. <clears throat> the question, therefore, of the history of being demands the radical decoupling of Dasein from the concept of an objectified animality. <clears throat> Already because there cannot, the animal and the human being cannot appear on the same plane of thinking according to the radicalization of phenomenology that Heidegger undertakes. <clears throat> to understand this question of history, therefore, in the context of the radicalized, sorry, not saying the same thing again, radicalized phenomenological stance of Heidegger, 
demands the radical deobjectification of the world and the derepresentation of thinking in such a way that the word body itself becomes questionable. <clears throat> now, what about, <clears throat> as we are in slightly depressing territory already, once we talk about global warming, <clears throat> what about a nightmare? Now, at the beginning of Iron Mind, as I said, Merleau-Ponty outlines the danger that arises from the ontological truth of the hermeneutic circle, namely, following on Nietzsche's illumination on the eternal return of the same, as giving rise to the utmost importance of our thinking and of our habits of thought for all that is to come, which is in the famous uh, 1881 pronunciation on the eternal return, on the sudden illumination of the eternal return at Sils Maria. I repeat that again. The utmost importance of our thinking and of our habits of thought for all that is to come. Merleau-Ponty gives the most extreme account of the danger of technology. Once we think about a human being as absolutely manipulatable, well, I managed to say that, that's <laughs> as part of the global gestell, once we fail to make a difference between mining ore and mining the capacities of humans in the form of their resource management, the human being will become the manipulandum that it thinks itself to be. That's why I called it the ontological truth of the hermeneutic circle. <clears throat> Not just a question of what you think about, <coughs> but how that thought, in the end, makes you who you are. That's why the utmost importance of our thoughts and our habits of thoughts for all that is to come. In this respect, the human being, after about 2,500 years of metaphysical thinking, will have become the finely fixed animal. And as little as we know how to turn animals into thinking beings, could we consider the possibility of the human being waking itself or being woken, even by a god, from this nightmare? I don't know how many people take this nightmare scenario seriously, although one takes Merleau-Ponty seriously. I guess other people always say it's much more fun than Heidegger. <coughs> but <that's all> right. <coughs> now, contemporary philosophy, which mostly agrees with common sense in thinking that thinking does not really change much at all, cannot understand this problem and is therefore happily running ahead towards the abyss. In a frantic attempt, might this be in metaethics or neurophilosophy? to produce the final calculations that will save us from the ruination of technology, thereby being powered by what Heidegger calls not only the black notebooks, again and again, the Not der Notlosigkeit, or the need of needlessness. The feeling, like a bit in Nietzsche's famous 325 paragraph of gay science, when he speaks of the madman, and nobody seems to think that there's a problem at all of any sort. <coughs> That is what Heidegger calls the fear of the nothing, which is the fear of thought. Now, Heidegger does not speak about nightmares. Maybe he never had any, but I'm <coughs> not quite sure about this. How does he rephrase it in a more Nietzschean style in the contributions, uh, contributions to philosophy, discussing the essence of technology? What then is technology asks? I quote, is it the historical path to the end, to the falling back of the last man into the technicized animal, which never loses also the originary animality of the inserted animal. That is, for those who don't know Nietzsche well, precisely uh, this question that he raises in terms of the eternal return, and the decision between either this finely fixed animal or the overhuman. <clears throat> in other words, 
The question of technology is identical to the decision implied in this eternal return of the same. <clears throat> when Nietzsche equally calls this finally fixed animal untertierisch, which means even lower than the animal, which I would not take as a kind of moral stance on animality. But what he's thinking about is precisely lower than even that what we think of the animal. And as he realized in his days, when saw the animals following Descartes are just machines, uh, <coughs> just something calculable. And the human being would be even lower than that. <coughs> Where Heidegger said in Letter to Me that both, that there is some core resistance in the essence of the human being. I don't know if you know the Zodicon seminars, but there seemed to be an answer, so to speak, to this nightmare of Merleau-Ponty, <coughs> as if one could heal Merleau-Ponty's troubles a bit later on. Namely, where he says one needs cells of resistance to keep awake or keep a life philosophy and to wait until that moment that the human being will return to it out of the desolation of its existence. Now, what I was interested in here, just in opening vague remarks, is why does, Nietzsche, why does Heidegger think in the Solicon seminars that there is something like a core resistance within human being? Whereas a bit later, <coughs> Uh, namely here in the Black Notebooks, he responds in the following words. He says that, I quote, maybe though, in the middle of the suddenness of its turning, the event will keep to itself so that everything petrifies into machination and that this petrified state pretends to be life. And that I take is nearly the same explanation than nightmare, except it doesn't petrified nightmare. Now, following this explication, Heidegger discusses the absolute organization of the organ, which we can now call the brain in neuroscience, understood as the technological working out of its own foundation. The question thus is, in how far Heidegger's critique of technology, as we knew it for a long, long while in the question of technology and so on and so forth, is intelligible only on account of the prior clarification of the question for the history of being. So just some, hopefully, closing remarks. I have to look at my time. On this question itself. Now, the Heidegger's Blade Notebooks can give us any help with the problems of these four problems that the human being is confronting. According to many commentators, including Günter Fieger, sorry, I didn't want to make out of him some kind of person to constantly beating somehow. <coughs> but as he says, it's not very plausible that was a quotation. Actually, the whole question for the history of being is, according to the letter, not very plausible. I was just struck by the word plausible. It comes a bit, comes across a bit strange. Now, as I was struggling how to give an introduction to the problem of history to an audience which knows Heidegger most likely better than I do, uh, <clears throat> I thought, what kind of motivation can I have to say these things at all? And I just thought, if Günther Fieger would be here, I could try to persuade him that there's actually more plausibility in the question of history in Heidegger than uh, one sees at first go. <clears throat> I'm referring in this case to a text called Clearing in Space, Thinking with Heidegger and Beyond, a paper that can be used in a kind of negative, heuristic way to try to make some general points about Heidegger's thought as it moves from this famous movement as its methodology, the question of the meaning of being to the question of the history of being. And like many other commentators, Fiegel here tries to weed out the thought of history in Heidegger in order to make it more palatable. 
because as I said before, it means it is the case that the sort of history uh, that to it attaches itself all the kind of unpalatable uh, remarks that Heidegger makes. <coughs> Equally like many other commentators, he seems to ignore the point that, as Heidegger claims, the blindness to history is an essential sign of our contemporary fear of thinking. As much as of the decline, I quote sorry, from Black Notebooks 98, as much as of the decline of history in the so-called beginning of world history in the sense of planetary operation, end quote. As one can easily see in the conclusion to Fiegel's essay, without the question of the history of being, Heidegger's thought becomes completely meaningless. <clears throat> and that includes the early phase of being in time. One might say we tend not so much to overlook the essential notion of history, we rather repress it. And that can be seen in many commentators in Heidegger, from even Gadamer very early on, where he often complains about this kind of abstract historical schemata, for example, in Heidegger. And he says, oh, Heidegger did not see the necessity or the good things about art galleries. And I can't remember Heidegger ever saying that all art galleries should be shut down. That's <coughs> a different thing altogether. <coughs> so even from Heidegger, sorry, from Gadamer via Habermas to Fiegel and most in between, often even when they make history an explicit topic of the interpretation. Considering that, we need to bear in mind that following Hegel, Heidegger is quite convinced that this is not due to the lack of conservation on account of these authors as every author interprets from out of the experience and back towards it. In other words, that everyone always speaks the truth, but that we hear again an insight into that which is. Uh, maybe that is superfluous to mention, but as far as I can see, Heidegger, uh, every philosopher has not even any choice or any but to speak the truth. <clears throat> because following Nietzsche, how would lying even be possible? Now, what are the main points of these major ignorances? I'm trying to get that out of the way. First of all, the question of history. <clears throat> Fiegel, just one of many, seems to think of philosophy as a purely logical exercise of the mind, trying to make use of objective ideas in order to grasp objective facts. The idea of philosophy that really became or came to an end in 1807 and has been comprehensively buried by Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. He, Fieger, that is, consequently remains completely ignorant of Heidegger's path of thinking from being in time to his later philosophy. Every claim about the meaningfulness of being in time, in opposition to, I call the obfuscation of the later work, just bears witness to this misunderstanding of fundamental ontology, which is, after all, itself an essentially historical path of thinking. In other words, it is not the case that Heidegger's path of thinking enters the question of history in his later works, without it, rather, the thought of being in time is itself utterly unintelligible, precisely because it becomes slightly too intelligible. You can see that already in such a text in terms of the relation between philosophy and the sciences. When I said that people always thought Merleau-Ponty is more fun, it's because he it has lots of fun facts from science that he involves in his writings. And everybody likes that quite a lot. And then I said Heidegger was completely ignorant of all this, didn't know anything, was also trapped and tried. <coughs> now, if philosophy and the sciences were all just purely logical exercises of the mind trying to grasp things, then we just have to see that there are different things to grasp for both of them. In order to conclude that, I quote from Fiegel again, philosophy can go along the sciences without competition, end quote. So that would still require an idea of the object domain of philosophy, while again completely ignoring Heidegger's thought of the idea of science as part of the history of technology itself. 
Die Technologie ist Essence, ist nothing technological, but itself geschichtliche Geschichte. All this idea of history as, in a certain sense, destiny. And yet the presumed ignorance of science on the part of Heidegger is one of the major points irking many of its commentators. I should really try to find an empty of them. Oh, yes, I should. Heidegger's method of thinking, and that again is something which makes for me the Black Notebook so interesting. For Figer can see in early Heidegger and later Heidegger only two different versions of a theoretical viewpoint which can simply be compared with each other in view of this strange word named plausibility. Consequently, his reading of Heidegger compares early, middle, and late in terms of plausibility of the views expressed in each face. Although the preface that Heidegger wrote to Richardson from phenology to thought has been available for a very long while, it seems not many commentators, some, I don't want to say none, certainly not, I mean, not many of the whole raft of commentators on Heidegger ever bear in mind what it says there. I mean, I quote Heidegger's words, the distinction you make between Heidegger 1 and Heidegger 2 is justified only on the condition that this is kept constantly in mind. Only by way of what Heidegger 1 has thought does one gain access to what is to be thought by Heidegger 2. I guess that's relatively straightforward. The second part might be more interesting, namely, but Heidegger 1 becomes possible only if it is contained in Heidegger 2. Or in other words, being in time does not make any sense without the later works the later writings of Heidegger. Yeah. I fear I might have to cut a bit. <coughs> cut a bit more. No, no, cut a bit less. The rest is just detail, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's maybe just, just a couple of the conclusion. The detail I leave out. <coughs> Now, what about this history of being? Just as four concluding remarks. Now, first of all, from early on, Heidegger radicalizes phenology in terms of the immediate experience of Dasein. That immediate is a very bad word here because it sounds a bit like sense certainty in Hegel, for example. Phenology is thus no longer a method applying certain techniques to thought, like the different layers of Husserl's epoche, but tries to unearth the historical depth of an experience that gives itself in its absolute presence. This giving itself an absolute presence is thought as the forgetfulness of being, as it conflates being and beings. And you're all most likely aware of the different ways of spelling and crossing our being, which means where it speaks first of all of the difference of being and beings, sounds a bit better in German actually, where then the being with Y appears, which is that from out of which the differentiation appears, where he then says, but as being with a Y and being without a Y and I is not something different not some other thing, uh, you then get to the being that is crossed through, namely the being that withdraws itself precisely towards that experience that we have in front of ourselves. That is for him the main problem of philosophy, namely, as we say, that everybody seems to think of their experiences. Experiences themselves give themselves as if they were, in a sense, absolute, as if they are indubitable. And yet philosophy is precisely trying to do that and to put into question this immediate givenness of the world. And that is opened up not by some transcendence. You know all this kind of discourse of Heidegger when he says transcendence is 
topic that will to drop some kind of embarrassment in philosophy. Secondly, this investigation to the way that experience gives itself in what one knows since Derrida as a metaphysics of presence, which therefore led back to its historical roots, thereby demonstrating that the truth of the world is not what it gives itself as. I quoted already our experience of space and time leads us into error, as Nietzsche says, and it's this error which Heidegger grounds in what he calls the repetition of metaphysics with the aim of its destruction. This thus tries, this being a time, to shake up the unhistorical way of experience by leading it back onto its no longer experienced ground. The basic misunderstanding of being in time thus lies in its thinking of it as a positive philosophy, as just saying what is, rather than seeing what it tries to destroy. In other words, what is being in time if it is not the attempt to abolish the apparent world? Uh, everybody knows this very famous step six uh, of Nietzsche's of the true world finally became a myth, where it says the contemporary task of philosophy is after we have abolished the true world, have we not abolished the apparent world itself? And that is what one can in a nutshell, if I can put it on the cover of the book or something, that is what being in time really does. Thirdly, the whole problem of thinking therefore consists in that thought has no longer anything absolute onto which to base itself. <coughs> That's too obvious as well. <coughs> Actually, that's the last claim was nice enough, actually, for an end, I thought. So maybe just cut it off here.